Take your Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, you know, usually in my sermons I don't mention the sins and the problems of other specific people, even famous people. I'm always reminded that for every finger that I point at others, I have three more pointing back at myself. And if we wanted to use the terminology of Jesus, Scripture would have us take the log out of our own eye before we take a speck out of our brother's eye. And another reason I don't usually like to use other people's faults as sermon illustrations is because these people are real people. Even famous people are real people. If someone is hurting or if someone is hurting themselves, destroying his own life by his actions, well, I don't find it particularly helpful for preachers to pile on. It's sort of an easy game. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. It's low-hanging fruit. And uh, I don't think that's very good for our witness. We become targets if we do that of uh, hypocrisy, charges of hypocrisy and mean-spiritedness. And so I hope that uh, you can understand uh, my heart today. I am going to use an illustration that's in the public arena, um, but I'm not doing so, I'm not laughing at the misfortunes of any other person or being insensitive to his plight, but I, I do want us to learn an important life lesson. And I'm reminded of uh, one time that I uh, was told by my parents that we would be going over to uh, our, my granddad's house and my grandmother's house. And so I got in the car. We lived in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And I got in my own car, and I thought I would just meet them there. And so I drove down to Burleson to be with my dad's parents. Little did I know they were talking about my mom's parents in Fort Worth. So I'm with my granddad, just me and him, and, and he, he asked me, what, why are you here? He said, well, my parents are coming. Oh, really? Okay. So we sat and talked for a while and waited and waited and waited. This is before cell phones. And, and, um, and before long, I finally figured out, I think he meant my other, grandpa- my, my other grandparents. So uh, I apologized, and my granddad, just in passing, Granddad Rhodes, said, Uh, Well, you know, David, there's a lot of ways to learn lessons. And you can always learn from your own mistakes. And that's really good. It's best if you learn from other people's mistakes. And I said, yes, sir. And so I I went on and met up with my family. Uh, But the person I wanted to uh, talk to you about today, at least to begin this sermon, is a man by the name of uh, Randy Gregory. Randy Gregory is a defensive lineman for the Dallas Cowboys, my favorite team. And he should be playing right now in his second NFL season, but there's a problem. He's been tested positive for drugs. In fact, before this season started, he was suspended for four games. And you don't get suspended for four games if it's your first positive test. But he was suspended for four games, and during that suspension... He was caught again, and he was suspended an additional 10 games. That's 14 out of a total of 16 games in an NFL season. Well, now, this week, according to news reports, he was caught one more time. And if that's true, then he'll likely be suspended for an additional 16 games, an entire year, at the end of this 14-game 
suspension. And so for each game that an NFL player is suspended, he loses one-sixteenth of his salary, his annual salary. And he is set to lose, if this latest report is true, almost two years of salary. And I don't, like I said before, bring him up to you to pile on him because I, I don't feel that's necessary. He's hurt himself, and I, and I almost feel bad for him, feel sorry for him. But my question that I think we can learn an answer to is this. Why would a person harm himself like that? What would cause a person to make the same bad decision repeatedly at increasing levels of harm to himself? I don't think it's just a matter of being dumb. Well, that's just a dumb person who would do something like that. I don't think it's just a matter of being dumb. I think there's something else going on. And my guess is that the other thing that's going on in his life is a spiritual enslavement. A spiritual enslavement and a lack of power to make better life decisions. It is an enslavement to sin, an enslavement to a habit that draws that person to do the same thing over and over again. You see, sin is not just an action that we commit. Oops, I committed a sin. It's not just an action that we commit or a bad word that we say or an evil thought that we think. Sin is different than that. It is that, but it's more than that. Sin is also a power that enslaves. It is a spiritual force that captures us and won't let us go. Have you ever been enslaved to sin? Have you ever had that experience where you're so, just so d- disgusted and shame-filled over your slavery to sin that you vowed, I'll never do that again, and then you end up doing the same thing again? Why? Have you ever felt like, I hate myself because I did this that I said I wouldn't do? My daddy used to do this, and now I'm turning out just like him. Or my mama used to do this, and I'm turning out just like her. Have you ever had that kind of experience? You find yourself sort of pulled back as if by the cords of an invisible web, and over and over again you resolve not to do that, and yet there's that temptation, and you give in. Peter deals with this issue of enslavement to sin in 1st Peter chapter 2 verses 11 and 12 the Bible says beloved I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers they may because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. There's a few lessons we can learn from these verses. We'll begin in verse 11, of course. And I think the lesson of verse 11 is this. Don't feed the ungodly passions of your heart. Don't feed that power 
but yet cut it off. Verse 11 again reads, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. I want you to notice, first of all, Peter calls us two things. He calls us beloved. That's not just a a term used in passing, but it's a very important term, beloved. Now, Peter, here he is, he's an apostle. He walked with the Lord Jesus Christ. The same guy that wrote this is the guy that walked with Jesus Christ for over three years, was close, as close to Jesus as anyone, and he's giving us advice, and yet he, in fact, he's even calling us brothers. He's relating to us as brothers and sisters, and this basic principle should be the driving force on, uh, regarding how we relate to one another. We should always view one another as brothers and sisters. And so he calls us beloved, those that are loved by God. And then he says that since you are aliens and strangers, aliens and strangers. Unfortunately, when we think about aliens, we think about Star Wars, and we think about all kinds of science fiction and, and E.T. and whatever else, other movies you may have seen. But not so with us, I hope. Not so with us. When we're called aliens, it means that we are people that don't belong where we are. We're strangers in a foreign land. We're sojourners. We are exiles in a different place than where we belong. We're away from home, in other words. Well, why would Peter say to Christians, you're away from home? Because we have a home. We have a home with the Lord Jesus Christ. But right now, on this earth, in this kingdom, this spiritual kingdom that is the realm of Satan, we dwell there. We dwell in a land filled with sin, we dwell in a land filled with sickness. We dwell in a land uh, filled with all kinds of evil. But this is not our home. Anywhere where sin and sickness and evil dwells, that's not exactly our permanent place. We're strangers. We're sojourners. We're exiles. Aliens. We are temporary residents in a world that is not our home. And so because we've responded to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been transferred from this present evil kingdom to a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. And right now, as it were, it's as if we have one foot in each kingdom. We experience the, the blessings of being saved, but at the same time we still suffer from the experience of being born into a kingdom that is filled with sin and sickness and death. And so right now, understanding that you are a temporary exile in a place that is not going to be a place of permanence for you spiritually. With that in mind, we are told in verse 11 to abstain from fleshly lusts. What's that mean? Don't behave the way the world behaves. Genesis chapter 5 verse 19 lists some, some of these passions 
these lusts that go on that we have to guard against. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. Can a Christian commit all of those sins? Sure. It's possible. Why? Because we live in a world that's filled with these things. Those temptations are real. But those temptations are what we are called to stay away from, abstain from, keep away from those things. 1 John 2, 6 calls these passions, he sort of generalizes these passions into three big groups. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. Every sin that you might ever commit, every temptation that you might ever face will fit one of those three categories. It will be the lust of the flesh, the desire of what your body wants, or it will be the lust of the eyes, you see something and you want it, the envy that you have, or it will be the boastful pride of life. I want this. It's important to me because I deserve it. Every sin, every temptation you ever encounter will be one of those three. And so we're called to abstain from these things. To abstain, you know, means to keep away from, to to avoid, stay completely away from these things. And it's in the present tense. I want you to notice that the word abstain is in the present tense, meaning that it has the sense of continually keep away from sinful desires. Do not let yourself indulge them at any time. It's not enough for you to say, okay, I'm going to abstain from this fleshly lust, this temptation that, that I have, a, have an issue with, that wants to draw me in, wants to overpower me. I'm going to do my best uh, for a few minutes to abstain from that. No. Not for a few minutes. But make it a practice to walk completely away from that. Our society says that the passions of the flesh, the things that, that, you're, that compel your body to want to, uh, in our estimation, sin, that those passions of the flesh are morally neutral, sort of uncontrollable. Ah, you're just human. It's okay, because you're just human. Everyone does it. It's not a big deal. For example, one example of many would be sexual activity outside of marriage. Our society says, well, it's just morally neutral. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just morally neutral. It's your body. Do what you want with it, our society says. They say, what's the big deal? They say, oh, everyone sleeps around. But that's a lie. Sex outside of marriage is wrong, but sex within marriage is good and right. Our society says that, that sex outside of marriage, to use the same example, is uncontrollable. You know, teenagers, they just can't control themselves. They're going to do it anyway. The least we can do is just provide them with the best protection that we can give them. But listen, if you treat teenagers, if you treat young people like dogs, how do you think they're going to behave? They're going to behave. We're more than dogs. We can say yes, we can say no. If your passions, whatever your passions, the passions of the flesh are, were either morally neutral or uncontrollable then God wouldn't tell you to abstain from them would he God would not give you a command that you could not carry out 
And God says to you and me in verse 11, abstain from these things. Abstain from the lusts of the flesh. Keep away from them. God would not tell us that if we could not do it. And the reason God wants you to keep away from sinful desires is because, verse 11 says, they wage war against the soul. Again, the present tense verb is used, and it means this. These fleshly lusts continually wage war against your soul. It is a battle of attrition. It is designed to wear you down spiritually. You know, some Christians think, well, I can just sort of entertain lust in my heart as long as I don't act act out on it. But the reality is that these passions, when these passions are encouraged, when these passions are even ignored, these passions are enemies to your spiritual health, and it will make you weak and ineffective. So how do you do it? How in the world do you leave those things behind? Jesus gave us a clue in John chapter 4 in that great story where Jesus encounters a woman at the well, a Samaritan woman at the well. In John chapter 4 verse 7, I'm going to read this story and then we're going to come across a very important verse right in the midst of it. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. She said, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. I hope that you see already, just by a simple reading of this passage, of this story, that the water that she came to get was a physical water, but Jesus is talking about something else. He's talking about a spiritual thirst, what your soul thirsts for. And if you take the living water, that is Jesus, you will not thirst for other things in your soul. Let's continue the story. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. She still didn't understand. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming, but neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Well, at this point, the disciples came. And they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, What do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city, and they were coming to him. A couple of things here. Number one, earthly water will leave you thirsty. And we're talking about spiritual drink. Earthly water will leave you thirsty. Isaiah 55 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Earthly water will leave you thirsty, but there's a spiritual water from God that will satisfy. Proverbs 27, verse 20 says, Sheol and, Ab- Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. Sheol and Abaddon, that's the place of the dead. The grave is never satisfied, the proverb has said. And the other thing that's never satisfied are the eyes of man. Always wanting more. Always wanting another. Spiritual water will never satisfy your eyes. Jeremiah 2.13 says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Listen, if you daily receive Jesus' living water and you drink it, you will not be thirsty anymore, but you will be free of the craving of the flesh and slavery to it. And you're only ready for the living water when you admit that that gratifying the flesh does not satisfy. The key verse, at least for our purposes today, In the story about Jesus and the woman at the well is verse 28 of John chapter 4. And we sort of pass by this verse because it seems so unimportant. Just a little detail that John provides us. But it's an important detail. Look what the woman did. So the woman left her water pot. She left her water jar. 
She left the thing behind that filled up with earthly water that does not satisfy. And I would say that there is a spiritual lesson here for us. That if you're enslaved to sin, it is time to leave your earthly water pot behind. Leave behind that part of your spiritual life that feels the need to be filled up over and over and over again and yet never satisfied. And instead, on a daily basis, come to Jesus. Pray to Him. Read His Word. And satisfy your heart. We are to live not according to the lusts of the flesh, but with excellent conduct. Verse 12 in 1 Peter chapter 2 gives us an alternative to living according to the flesh, but rather, instead of doing that, we are to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, you may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter's talking about your day-to-day pattern of behavior. In other words, your lifestyle on Friday night, your lifestyle on Saturday night, should be the same lifestyle that you have on Sunday morning. You ought to be the same person. Not a public persona and a private persona, but the same kind of person throughout the week. You should have a character that is excellent, a character that is morally upright, a character that is one of integrity. Titus chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 says, Show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. I find it a little bit humorous that, um, not to get too political, but that Hillary Clinton, who just lost the election, came out in a phone call to a lot of her big donors blaming the FBI for coming out and, uh, with information that they were still investigating her actions. And whether or not the FBI's actions were something that should have been made public. I find it curious that she did not seek to blame herself. She put herself in a bad situation. But in your life, are there situations that you can avoid putting yourself in that might give an opponent of yours cause to besmirch your character you need to have an excellent character morally upright just do the right thing it is not difficult just to do the right thing sometimes you pay a price but it's not that difficult you know what's right and you know what's wrong do the right thing every single time be willing to pay the price if there's a price to be paid, but in the end, you'll be rewarded for it. Be an excellent person, one of moral uprightness. 
Peter says that we should keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. He, he's calling all unbelievers Gentiles because all Christians are part of the, the true Israel. And according to the imagery he's using, everyone who has not yet trusted Christ is a Gentile. They're outside of the people of God. You know, it's very politically correct today to, to say to people, well, you know, we're all children of God. And that may be true in the sense that God is our creator and that he's created all of us, but it's not true in a very spiritual, personal sense because God may be, he may act as a father to all people. He may be fatherly toward all people, but he is the personal spiritual father only to those who believe. Some people are saved. Some people are part of his family and others are not. Sometimes lost people will slander Christians as evildoers. Verse 12 says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. The reality is that we live in a situation, that we live in a world where you can be as right as rain, and yet unbelievers will find some way to criticize you. They'll call you a name, they'll call you a hypocrite, they'll call you... A uh, a homophobe they'll call you all kinds of different uh, assassinations really on your own character things that are not true of you they will attribute to you but just keep living the right way because on the day of visitation on the day when the Lord returns on the day when there is an accountability of all people before him people would be able to say about you that you lived a morally excellent life. That term, the day of visitation, just one little detail about it, it has no definite article in the Greek text. If it did, we would know that it's talking specifically about the day of judgment. But without the definite article, it could also refer to, it could be said this way, on a day of visitation. What's the difference? The difference could be that on a day of, well, a day of visitation, it might refer to a day that, in which that person got saved. When they were visited by the Lord, not in a manner of, being judged at the end of human history but rather visited by the Lord and shown mercy here and there in, in this life before they die Peter very well could be saying Christian be morally excellent so that those things that unbelievers in your life they accuse you of on the day that they meet Jesus here in this world and they get saved they can turn right around and say I was wrong thank you for being consistent in your life and in your witness thank you for praying for me because now I know now I'm saved could be Peter was saying that. And if so, 
it would be a very good reminder to each one of us that the stakes are very high. When we live unrighteously, when we give in to our fleshly desires, it is a bad witness to those who need the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we can learn to leave our water pot behind and fill up every day with the living water, people will see that. And they may not immediately turn to Christ. They may still call us names. They may still slander us. But there exists the possibility that they would say there's something different about that person, and I want it. And they may be saved.